Well, good morning. I'm Todd Mangum. Uh, first uh, thing I want to say is I'm not Dave Dunbar. You may have noticed that already. Uh, Dave is uh, having uh, a, a time away uh, here at the beginning of uh, November, uh, but uh, I did work with Dave Dunbar for about 15 years of his 27 years as president of Missio Seminary, where uh, I continue to serve my day job, my full-time job as a professor of missional theology, and since August, also academic dean. And four years ago, you, this church, uh, commissioned me to serve as part-time teaching pastor at uh, a largely Korean, Korean-American church in Plymouth Meeting. That's uh, where I am about half the time. Uh, I am still one of you. <laughs> I am still a member in good standing of Grace Bible Church. This is my home church, but uh, I have been fulfilling that commission and, in Plymouth Meeting, and I'm there about uh, half the time when I'm not there. And uh, even sometimes when I am there, uh, I continue to pray for you. I'm still with you uh, in spirit, and uh, I'm certainly praying with you, with us, as uh, we are as a church in a period of significant transition. It's been about a year. Boy, that's good news to see that is up there behind me. It's been about a year since I preached at Grace Bible Church. Last time I preached, it was out in the tent over there. Lots happened in a, in a year uh, here this morning. But uh, here we are uh, a year later, well, November 2021, in a time of transition time of stress, time of prayer. We are in a season of prayer, and as we are in this season of prayer, the elders, Pastor Dave Dunbar among them, is uh, walking us through biblical teaching on prayer. And I want to follow up on that series in prayer this morning in Exodus 13 and 14. And I'm going to ask the question this morning, which way would you go? That'll become more important later as we get in. But last week, uh, it's actually been referred to at least three times this morning, <laughs> Pastor Dave took us through uh, the expressions of lament that are found uh, in Scripture. Uh, I, uh, I asked him for this slide. I said, you know what, that'd be really good. Uh, to lead in for what I, what I think the Lord is leading me to talk about uh, the following week. So I might characterize what we're going to look at this morning is, as which way would you go? A biblical theological epilogue to the message last week on crying out to God. When you are confused or frustrated or distressed. Well, a lot of times we're confused, frustrated, or distressed because we don't know what God's will. We don't know exactly what direction He is seeking for us to go. We don't know what the next step He wants us to take. James tells us, James the Lord's Jesus Christ's half-brother, tells us when you lack wisdom, that is when you don't know what to do, when you don't know the right way to go, ask of God. He's ready, willing, able, eager to show you the way to go, to give you wisdom. 
He's not stingy with the wisdom. He's actually generous with the wisdom. So ask God. Well, in Exodus 13 to 14, they don't really have this problem of seeking to find out which way the Lord would lead them to go because they have this wonderful provision beginning at the end of Exodus 13 of a cloud by day, fire by night. All they have to do is follow the cloud by day, the fire by night. Uh, an old uh, Sunday school song that I learned as a kid, the Lord knows the way through the wilderness, so all we have to do is follow. My sister uh, reconfigured that uh, at one point, said, my Lord knows the way through the wilderness, so all I have to do is swallow. But <clears throat> anyway, you get the idea. All you have to do is follow step by step. The Lord's leading. Don't you wish we could have cloud by day? fire by night, and our day and time? Wouldn't that make everything just so much easier? Well, well, not quite so fast. We're told that uh, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, that's how he got there, that's how he landed in Egypt, he rose in prominence by God's taking him through a series of puzzling, frustrating, distressing events. But eventually he wound up as second in command to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, to reward him, allowed him to bring his father and his entire family into the primo prime land of Egypt. As kind of a reward of leading Egypt through famine, he gave Joseph, his father Jacob, and his other 11 brothers the land of Goshen to shepherd their flocks and live in the land. Now, uh, I have some seminary class habits here that uh, I, I've struggle to get rid of. So I'm just going to ask you, anybody know where the land of Goshen is? If I gave you the marker and asked, you know, where is Goshen? Where is that? Anybody? Anybody? Northeast. Dick says northeast. Are you saying over here, Dick? What's that? Above the Cairo. Above the Cairo. See, I'm trying to, trying to goad him into giving the wrong answer, but he in, <laughs> he in fact does know there's Goshen. There's Goshen. 430 years ago, by the time we get to Exodus 13, 430 years ago, this is for a point of reference, and in our day, 430 years ago, that's 15 years before the founding of Jamestown Colony. That's a long time ago. First 30 years of that 430 worked out okay, apparently. But then a pharaoh came who did not know Joseph, and for 400 years they're in slavery. That's, that's longer than the North Atlantic slave trade. But anyway, 400 years they're in slavery. That's a long time. <clears throat> the plagues hit Egypt as a liberating mechanism, and uh, we're told, hail hits the land of Egypt, except in Goshen where the Israelites are, where God's people are. Locusts plague the land of Egypt, except in Goshen, where God's people are. Darkness hits all of Egypt, except in Goshen, where God's people are. 
there's Goshen. Thank you, Dick Close. Here's the promised land. There's Israel. It's not Israel yet. <laughs> but there's Israel. So, we'd spend at least an hour on this in class, if this were a seminary class, but I've got about two minutes on this exercise this morning, probably more like 90 seconds. But there you are in Goshen. There's the promised land where you're going. Which way would you go? I, I could tell you which way I'd go. Point A, point B, I'd take the shortest path. I mean, I, I, I don't need directions to promised land from there. It's, it's dead east. Here's the route, the cloud by day, fire by night. Took Israel. First thing. First direction, the cloud by day, fire by night leads them. What? Now, I know you wouldn't say this, but, of course, the Old Testament, backward people of God in Exodus, when the cloud by day, fire by night leads them this direction, they're confused frustrated, and eventually become quite distressed. There's lots here, not to mention, you know, among the details that we're not going to look at, here's the passage that tells us, there were uh, 600,000 men, if there were at least as many women, all right, that's a million too, if they were, on average, like in the United States, the average home having 2.1 children, okay, you're talking close to 3 million people. And, and not armed to the teeth military force, you're talking about vulnerable homesteader wagon people, th about 3 million. There, there are more people in this group who cannot serve as soldiers than who can. I mean, you've got the elderly, you've got the children, anyway. <clears throat> but they're going from Ramses to Sukkot. So that tells you exactly where they are, right? <laughs> well, little help. There's Ramses. There's Sukkot. <sighs> we're going the wrong way. <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying. I, we're going the wrong way. This, this is not the way of the promised land. This is the wrong direction. Oh, don't worry, don't worry, it's going to work out, it's going to work out, it's going to be fine. Okay, okay, all right, we're following the cloud. Whose idea was it to follow this cloud? Okay, well, we're going, we're going step by step, it's going to be okay. But then it gets even worse. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back. The word there is actually shub, which is the word for repent in the Old Testament. So, we're not told exactly the route they went. Uh, when we get to the map, I'll show you a couple of possibilities. But they actually either went past it or turned east, but God had them turn back, turn around. They shubed. <laughs> they turned back. They turned around. 
to go to this place, Pihahirot. Well, where's Pihahirot? Pihahirot's even further south. So they either went east because part of what God says is to Moses, Pharaoh is going to think that the Israelites are intimidated by the wilderness and turned back. Uh, so they either went east and turned back, or they went past it even further south and realized, or at least this is the way it would appear, uh, to Pharaoh, who's watching their movement, that they're, they're lost, they're, they're wandering south, there's no way they're going to get you know, over here and turn back to Pihahirot. Well, now, at least by prima facie appearance, now they're in trouble. Because now they're not only going the wrong direction, now they're pinned against the sea. Which is fine, I suppose, as long as no one's after them. But Pharaoh sees this and sends his uh, probably northern regiment. Uh, it, it would have been, uh, well, a thousand chariots and maybe ten times more regular infantry, armed to the teeth, grieving and angry about losing their firstborn. Remember, that just happened. And ready for blood, right on their heels. Now, this is the direction God's eventually going to take them. We're on this little passage here in a moment. But He's taken them this way, further and further. And, I mean, look at this. Wilderness of Shur, wilderness of Etham, uh, wilderness of uh, uh, Seri. What do they all have in common? They're all wilderness. <laughs> if you've got your wives and children and all your stuff, you don't want to just get into three layers of wilderness. Why would God lead him this way? This honest to goodness, <clears throat> if this were a Sunday school class, much less a seminary class, we'd probably spend the rest of the class on this question. Because it's a great diagnostic question for what do you think of God? Why would God lead them this way? Because God is sovereign. You are to mindlessly follow without asking questions. You are to mindlessly obey without understanding or seeking understanding. Bow submissively before His sovereign will. Is that what you think? Well, the Israelites are getting a little too comfortable. I'll tell you what you, my people, need. You need a little time with your hind parts in the wilderness. That's what you need. You know, you think you're going to be comfortable and take the promised land and whatnot? Let me tell you what I got planned for you. Wilderness. Wilderness. That's what I got planned for you. Enjoy the deprivation, the waterlessness, the foodlessness. Enjoy, because that's my plan for you. Is that what you think of God? Why would God lead them this way? 
Oh my goodness, Israelites, I have got a fireworks display set for you. I mean, I know you've seen 10 plagues and whatnot, but I got a big one coming. I want you to see my awesome power at least one more time before you go through. Is that what you think? Might be a little something to that one. Here's what we're actually told in this passage. Remember where Goshen is, Dick? Remember where the promised land is? Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right, there's Goshen, there's Promised Land. All right, if we blow that up, all right, here's the, here's the Mangum route. And probably 98% of you. But anyway, this is the way I'd go. But if they went that way, the very first people they would have hit in the Promised Land to conquer would have been the Philistines. Now, God's power is capable of overcoming the Philistines, okay? It's not a shortage of God's power. I mean, even though it's a David and Goliath kind of situation, actually, it's not kind of situation. David was an Israelite. Goliath, come to think of it, was a Philistine. <laughs> but anyway, uh, God's capable of overthrowing the Philistines. He is. So with enough faith, with enough courage, they could take on the Philistines, but truth is, they're the biggest, baddest, most fully armed in the entire promised land. In fact, they are the last for the Israelites to expunge when they do get into the promised land. In fact, in fact, they never fully expunge them. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, do you see that in the bottom right? That's BBC. They didn't exist in... <laughs> you know, 1500 B.C. This is from day before yesterday. That little slice of land there in the southwest corner of Israel, the Philistines are still there. Today it's called the Gaza Strip. But that group of Canaanites has never been expelled from the promise. They're that powerful. And long story short, Stuff happened, disobedience, rebellion, and whatnot. God said, okay, I'm going to stop expelling the enemies and whatnot. But anyway, they're still the most persistently resistant and powerful of the enemies of God's people in Israel, arguably even to this day. And so, God says to Moses, I mean, I, I'm going to clear out the entire promised land. But that would be asking a lot to expect them very first thing to take on the most challenging of them all. So I, I, I'm going to accommodate that. I mean, this is how it's put in Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, yeah, if they face war, yeah, that could use uh, some elaboration, but uh, this doesn't speak real highly of the level of the Israelites' faith and trust in God and courage, but God's accommodating the level of faith 
he pastorally considers they reasonably could be expected to have. Do you know we're told he has the same sort of mentality today? You know, 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized you except what is common. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, there may be a purpose for it. It may be a kind of period of distress, trial, temptation that you think is bigger than you can bear. But God actually is calculating such things, calculating, factoring in even what level of faith, trust in Him would be reasonable at your stage of maturity, etc., that could be reasonably expected of you. The reason God doesn't take them the most direct route, the one reason we're told in context, we can infer a number as we go on, and we are in about three minutes, but the one reason we're told explicitly is God's pastorally, pastorally accommodating their weakness, frailty, and the level of faith that they have. That's why. C.S. Lewis, well-known Christian fiction writer, also not a bad theologian, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Great Divorce, other well-known writings that have become famous. This is actually from a personal letter, pastoral letter to someone struggling with the leading will of God amidst trial. And in that context, Lewis gives his famous dog on a lead. Lead is British for leash. (laughs) Dog on a lead or dog on a leash. He says this. Supposing you're taking on a dog on a lead, on a leash, through a turnstile or past a post. Now, you know what happens, apart from his usual usual ceremonies in passing a post. Uh, He tries to go to the wrong side, gets his head looped around the post. You see that he can't do it and therefore pull him back. You pull him back because you want to enable him to go forward. You actually have the same goal, to go forward. But he's wrapped around the stupid post or turnstile. He wants exactly the same thing, namely to go forward. For that very reason, he resists your pullback. Or... If he's an obedient dog, yields to it reluctantly as a matter of duty, which seems to him to be quite in opposition to his own will, though in fact it is only by yielding to you that he will ever succeed in getting where he wants. Now, I think that's a brilliant theological illustration. It's not that God wants the exact opposite of what you do in every situation, and you're just a bow in submission. It's that, unbeknownst to you, you might be wrapped around a post or in that circumstance, and you need to go backwards in order to go forwards. <clears throat> so here's the people of God in Exodus. Pinned against the Red Sea, when they turn around and see the Egyptian army behind them. In Exodus 14, 3 to 14, I'll just tell you, that is not Israel's finest moment. In their confusion, frustration, distress, some awful things come out of their mouths. 
They begin to question the leadership of Moses and Aaron. But they begin to question the character of God and say such things as, this is what we said back in Egypt. We'd have been better off being slaves to the Egyptians. Engage even in sarcasm. What? What, Moses? There's not enough graves in Egypt that you need to bring us over here to bury us where there's more room to bury us? Whose bright idea was it to follow this stupid cloud? Can I just say, it would be very, very generous to call Exodus 14, 3 to 14, lament. If, if that's what you mean by lament, and there's a place for lament, there's a place for question, but if that's what you mean by lament, I'd encourage you to rethink that. Exodus 14, 14, Moses, unlike in Exodus 5, when Moses was right with the people, saying, you know what, God, ever since we've followed your will, it's gotten nothing but worse, and you've not, you've not rescued your people at all. That's the end of Exodus 5. That's Moses. Thank goodness, Exodus 5 is followed by Exodus um, 6. <laughs> Exodus 6.1, now you're going to see what I'm going to do. It's Exodus 6.1, and then the story, the plot line changes, shifts. Moses has learned. The people have not, though. They're right back in Exodus 5. I told you, I told you we shouldn't have made trouble. I told you we should have just been satisfied with our slavery, our obedience to the Egyptians and their gods. Moses turns to them and says, people, people of God, God is poised and ready to fight for you. God is poised and ready to rescue you. God is poised and ready to intervene in this horrible situation. Va'atem ta'charashuk, that's the Hebrew. Here's the overtones of that pregnant with meaning phrase. God is poised to rescue you. With you sitting on the sideline, you're not even going to have to lift a finger. God's going to do it. Va'atem ta'chashiruk. That's one overtone. God is ready to save you, to rescue, to intervene. Va'atem <clears throat> while you wait quietly for him. It's a possible overtone. God is ready to intervene in a powerful way on your behalf. <laughs> if you would just shut up! <laughs> so be quiet, be still before the Lord. It's actually got multifaceted overtones. You people got to be quiet. God's ready to move on your behalf. 
But you got to settle down. You, you got to shut up. Exodus 14, 19. The angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army came back and went behind them. Remember that pillar of cloud by day, fire by night? It moved from in front of them and went to their rear guard, standing between God placing Himself between His people and His people's enemies. That's what's going on here. So that through the night, as threatening, strong, and powerful as the enemies of God are, some of which we heard about even in some of the John Freeman video that preceded, just preceded this message. The cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other side all night long. And then honestly, what happens next preaches itself. God commands Moses to raise his staff, and that sea against which they were pinned splits in half. God's people march to the other side on dry ground. The Egyptians say, well, it's dry ground. We can follow them. Moses raises his staff again, and the waters collapse on this strong, mighty, powerful threat. And their swords and shields and corpses begin washing up on shore. By doing it the way God did it, They didn't have to face the Philistines first. The Egyptian threat is destroyed. Even if Pharaoh, hard-hearted as he is, wants to chase them into the wilderness, he can't now. He doesn't have an army. (laughs) That's, That's back in the sea. And Exodus 15, well, that's the worship team song. I mean, I'd love to have our some of our musicians. Uh, take a hand at that. I can't do all that well, but oh, Pharaoh with his army, big and strong and mighty and all that, deep in the sea, deep in the sea. That's Exodus 15, mini version, okay? And also, the door shuts behind the Israelites so that even if their faith wanes and they want to go back to Egypt, now they can't. Now they've got the Red Sea, him and in. No place to go now but Sinai. And then the promised land. But that's all we have time for today. Among the many things we see in this account, we see God's power. We see God's care. But I'll tell you what so impresses me about God. It makes me love God more, honestly. He's just so stinking clever. (laughs) I I mean, the resourcefulness of this. One, closer to home, try to do it in 90 seconds to two minutes, okay? So this is, you know, 2000 B.C. Let's, Let's see if we can get closer to... 2,000-some A.D. I know a young man who went to college trying to follow the hand of God on his life, enrolled in Bible college 
at a school nearby. Now, the way this school did enrollment at that time, students, freshmen, waited in line for each course they needed their first term. So there are various lines that this young man confronted before classes started on this day in August, and he noticed that one line was particularly long. He had lots of classes to, to take, and uh, he thought, um, much like some of us do with a buffet line, I'll, well, just wait for the line to go down, and then I'll go, <laughs> go in, and that's, that's what he did. He, in fact, he enrolled in all of his other classes before he got in that line. It was the freshman English 1 class. Well, by then, it was 2, 3 in the afternoon. And the registration actually was about to begin to close. And when it was his turn to the front of the line, he was greeted with this message. I'm sorry, but this class is full. You're not going to be able to take English 1 your fall term. I can't take English 1. What am I supposed to do? It's one of my core classes. It's a freshman class. Well, it's, it's not optimal, but you can. You can do it. You can take English 2 first and then take English 1 in the spring term. And this young man said, what? Take English 2 first? This is my first year of college. I'm not sure I can do English 1. How am I supposed to take English 2? Well, I, 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 is there any way you can move it? No, I'm sorry. I, <clears throat> This young man was confused, frustrated, distressed. Meanwhile, a little, a little ways down the road, there was a high school girl, a senior, it turns out, who was in her final year of high school. Except that year, her school went on strike. You know, as public school teachers or want to do every once in a while. Uh, anyway, the school went on strike. So she wasn't able to get her classes, at least not, not right away. And usually the strikes last for a week or a month or two. This thing lasted for two, three, four months. In fact, the strike lasted so long that she was not able to enroll in the number of classes she needed to get the proper Pennsylvania Department of Education credits to graduate from high school. So now she's in trouble. She's confused, frustrated, distressed. It so happened that her father was a teacher at that college. And somewhere they came up with the idea, well, Maybe you can take a, a, a first-term English class so that you can get with this low-level college English class the credits you need to be able to graduate from high school. That's what she did. That young man was me. That was Todd Mangum. That young girl was Linda Potts. That English class that she took that spring term 
was English 1. Which is the class I wound up in because I couldn't get English 1 the fall term. I got English 1 the spring term. And she was an intimidated high school girl, scared to death. She needed tutoring. <laughs> and I'd already had English too. <laughs> That's right, still your hearts, people. That's 40 years ago. That's 1980. <laughs> that class is where I met Linda and the rest as they say is history I had opportunity to tutor her in English and many other subjects as well <laughs> but that August day when I'd wait in the line all day I was confused Frustrated, distressed. I was mad. I, I was royally mad. You gotta, I think, as I remember, I was able to control my temper enough that I didn't humiliate myself in front of the school administrators at the Bible college that I'd not even enrolled in my first class yet. But uh, when I got back to the dorm room, boy, I gave them an earful. When I called my parents that weekend, man, I gave them an earful. You got it. You can't believe this cockamamie system they have. I can't even get it to English. Well, you got to be kidding me. And here I am. Here I am, Lord, trying to go to Bible college. And this is the way I'm going to start. I mean, for all I know, to English too, I'm going to flunk out my first semester. Lo and behold, God had a plan. Which he had in mind for me far better than I could ever ask or even think or imagine. And you'd think that after 40 years I'd get the idea when I'm confused, frustrated, distressed. And that's what I'm going to leave you with this morning. <clears throat> when you're confused, frustrated, Distressed? Is it possible, just possible, that God might know what He's doing? That might, God might be up to something. Might be saving your hind parts. That might be bringing about something even better than what you can see, ask for, think, or imagine. It may be that some of what God is up to we may not see or experience until we get to the promised land on the other side. But there's enough of this in Scripture. And if we think about it and what God has done in our lives, that we don't really need to wait until then to recognize He's trustworthy. We can trust Him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your amazing, outstanding, clever resourcefulness. As we walk with you, as we seek to follow you, as we lament to you even, 
I pray that you would enable even our laments to be laced with trust. Hope, yes, but trust in what you are up to, even when we don't see it. In Jesus' name, amen.